Welcome to the Reader House Author Roundtable, where authors from all walks of life come together to discuss the trials, tribulations, and triumphs of publishing their books. I'm Alice Stockton Rossini. Join us here every Friday night at 8 p.m. or listen to our podcast anytime on Spotify, Apple, Podcast, Stitcher, TuneIn, and PodServe, just to name a few. The Author Roundtable is sponsored by Reader House Online Bookstore, where independent new authors come first. Does it make sense that sometimes you have an ache that needs a pill and sometimes you have an ache that needs a chiropractor or maybe you need a little bit of both, right? Pierce Wyckoff, DC, or Doctor of Chiropractic, has found the balance that has eluded the medical profession forever. And he joins us to talk about his book, Medical Integration Model, as it pertains to musculoskeletal conditions. Yes. Sounds very Mm -hmm. lofty. (laughs) <laughs> well, it's it's meant as a yeah as a study guide, but hopefully it can help with uh, the inter- interaction between medical personnel and chiropractors. I guess you saw a need for this book. Yes, so I've been a chiropractor for fifteen years, and eight of those years I've been in, in a, I've owned and been in a medically integrated practice. And uh, yeah, the goal is that there is a need for this in our communities, which means there's doctors, medical doctors, interacting with chiropractors. Yes. Interacting with nutritionists? Yes. That's a great idea. Why isn't everybody doing that? Well, unfortunately, a lot of times medical practices or even medical personnel themselves uh, almost practice like they're a frog in a well, which which just means like a frog is in the well and they only see a little circle of the blue, but then of the blue sky. But as the rains come in, you see a whole world out there. And if we can be more integrative in our medical practices, and diagnose and diagnosing our pathologies and just helping the patients from all sorts of different backgrounds it's just to the betterment of our patients that we see yeah and for years chiropractors got a bad rap right they were not recognized by the medical community as real quote-unquote doctors right yep yep you're exactly right so um yeah unfortunately we're all to blame in this yeah sometimes chiropractors are so standoffish with uh, different medical doctors or different uh, specialties. And uh, yeah, the goal is to treat the patient. And if we can all work together, it's, it's to the betterment of all of us, really. So tell me how you lay this all out in your book. Well, um, portions of it are, is a study guide for anybody, any practice who would like to become medically integrative or integrated. Uh, they can yeah, call me or we can uh, get together and we can help different practices become medically integrated. So a portion of the book is a study guide in order to help chiropractors. Maybe sometimes they are um, somewhat maybe um, not as familiar or not, or not as comfortable referring to medical providers. So we go over those conversations. Uh, we go over how to read x-rays uh, at the bare minimum to, to just review different pathologies. And um, yeah, so that's how we do it. So you're saying chiropractors are reluctant to refer patients to medical doctors? Yeah, sometimes. Why? Uh, well, sometimes, unfortunately, medical do- you have to have good relationships in, in each community. So sometimes medical doctors are, um, I mean, sometimes they take the patients. If someone's suffering from a musculoskeletal condition, such as neck pain, if a chiropractor wants to refer to a medical doctor, sometimes the medical doctor would just give maybe um, prescription medicine and not say, go and continue your treatment with a chiropractor. So sometimes it's just um, just a disconnect between the two uh, between the two professions. So, um, but yeah, it's just forging relationships. That's the goal of it though. Just give me an example. 
So if a patient uh, walks into, in, in this example, yeah, it would just be my office, in our office, uh, we take uh, x-rays first. And so we explain how if there is a misalignment through, regarding the spinal column, that can lead to neck pain. So we explain how a, an adjustment can help restore the neck mobility. And so if, we, if that occurs, then that is, of course, really good. But sometimes the patient needs some sort of additional medicine in order to help them along their treatment plan. And so it's just a very a collaborative approach in order to, for, to, for favorable patient outcomes. So how were you able to build this collaborative approach? Uh, we were able to just create alliances, if you will, or just uh, forge good relationships in our community. So uh, we began by referring to a primary care physician close to our office, just saying, if you're able to help, if I have patients that suffer from the flu or or uh, different uh, infections or something like uh, anything that like, uh, you know, rhinite or like um, eye infections or things like that. So I began with a, just a general practitioner. And then that progressed to having a relationship with a very good nurse practitioner and then also a pain management doctor. And so with chiropractic, it was just a natural progression because not everyone can be helped or helped to the, to the best of their abilities by chiropractic alone. So and then after that, we grew and then we just started employing uh, different uh, specialties into our surgery center. And um, and yeah, just sort of one thing after another there. Yeah. So now you're all under one roof, which you don't find everywhere. Am I right? Is it still kind of rare to find that? Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's definitely rare to find that because with a um, very active. Yeah. So now we have a surgery center, but we're able to have different avenues of patients that they can travel to, such as yeah, all under one roof. But say if someone's suffering from neck pain again, sometimes we start with the adjustments. If they need a natural progression to maybe muscle or, or, or uh, spinal injections. But the goal is everything is procedural based pain management. So it reduces the amount of opioid that patients are taking so oxycodone and vicodin because everyone sort of knows this but unfortunately it's a it's a un, it's a uh, miss or unfortunate truth if you will that once someone starts maybe prescription medicine that is the ability to progress into further uh, further action so the goal is everything's procedural based pain management in order to reduce the opioid epidemic that is going all across this nation so I guess there's a need for this book because if you go to chiropractic school, uh, they're not going to teach you how you can integrate with a medical doctor. And if you go to medical school, they're not going to they're not going to tell you how you can integrate with a chiropractor. Is that right? Oh yeah, you're you're exactly right because again, it's almost putting up walls. And um, again, the collaborative collaborative approach is what's best again for the patient. That's what we're here to do. And uh, there's so many patients and even that we talked a little bit about this in the book as well, as far as personal injury, like uh, car accident patients or even workers' compensation patients that are people who have been hurt at, at, on the job site. Sometimes the employers or sometimes the attorneys just say go to a pain management doctor. And, and if the alignment is not corrected, the inflammation will still be present. And um, yeah, there has to be so much of so much more of a uh, approach, a multidisciplinary approach. It sounds like there needs to be more than a book. Are you going to start doing seminars on this? I mean, really, it sounds like there needs to be like a whole nother school, like you're opening up a whole nother school of thought, which is unbelievable to me, because I would think the average person who... You know, I, I have benefited from chiropractors. I have benefited from medical doctors. I 
um, have a chiropractor who has no problem saying to me, Alice, we can't fix that. You're going to have to go see your doctor. Or we've done everything we can here. You might, it might be more medically based than chiropractic based. You know, it's so that's unfortunate that that's still the exception and not the rule. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Again, you're exactly right because unfortunately it is the exception. And, um, yeah, the more we work together and to answer your question, yeah, this was the beginning portion just, yeah, with, uh, publishing the book and doing this, of course, but yeah, I would like to do, uh, uh, instructional or informational videos and be able to uh, have a multidisciplinary approach. And, um, this is what is needed. Yeah. I, I mean, I would think, do patients come in and say, hey, how about if I go see a chiropractor or hey, like aren't patients, you know, we, we have access to the internet. We can come in and, and, and say, hey, you know, um, I don't want to take meds. Do patients ask for this integrated management? Yeah. Yeah. We see um, with our new patients that come in, uh, some are, um, yeah, some are actually uh, taking medicine or, or on opioids just due to an injury or, or um, due to, due to something. And, um, but I just say, just continue with your medical provider. And then as you feel better, because a lot of it, again, is rehabilitative in nature. So as your muscles in your back, so such as the back stabilizing exercises, as they stabilize, you should be able to reduce your medication. And then that's on a case by case basis. That's between you and your doctor. So yeah, there's conversations like that every day. And and um, the goal is to, yeah, again, reduce opioids, but just reduce it naturally as your body improves in stability and function. Yeah. Well, that's a good sign. Yeah. Oh, it is. It's, yeah, it's really quite rewarding because uh, so many people think it's like, yeah, we're not, we're not trying to do anything other than just, yeah, reducing the function of the body. I mean, it doesn't. Yeah. I know. And why, why wouldn't you want to feel the best you can possibly feel? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Right? And, uh, yeah, you can't put a price tag on yeah how you feel and yeah how you feel when you wake up in the mornings and your function of your daily activities and yeah that's what we want to improve. Yeah, are you getting um, responses? Are our doctors and chiropractors? You know, do you send this book to their office or you know how you getting the how you getting the word out? Yeah, well, right now it's just basically word of mouth. So, for example, yeah, we have an, again active surgery center. So I was working with a neurosurgeon just yesterday, and I and I on this particular day just yesterday I just helped with the day to day operations, such as um, just a patient flow of our facility. But uh, today I'm seeing patients as a chiropractor. So, but uh, yeah, it's just it's just word of mouth. I um, I talked with two other nurse practitioners, and but yeah, I, was, I will be sending this book out to different practices, and again with the videos, and yeah, just. Yeah, just growing at grassroots basically now. Where are you located? Uh, located in Phoenix, Arizona. So Phoenix, Arizona is where we can find real integrated medicine. Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right, Pierce. <laughs> thank you so much. It's very interesting. I love this topic. Oh, no. Thank you very much for the phone call. And you know, the pleasure is mine. All right. If you love sports, particularly the Dodgers, you're going to love our next book, Always Turn Down the First Offer, Memoirs of a Sportscaster. Hello. Hello, Tony Hernandez. How you doing? I'm doing really well. You were a sportscaster in New York, right? A generation ago or two. When? <laughs> I worked in New York from 1972 through 76 um, through and left New York in 77 to go work in Philadelphia. So where were you in Philadelphia? I was at KYW Channel 3. Okay. Are you familiar with it? 
Yeah, I started in Philadelphia. I started at, Did at you? KYW News Radio. Yeah, I started. Is that at, right? Yeah, I started at WISP. I mean, I was more like closer to the 90s. But Philadelphia, that's, uh-huh. you know, I grew up in the Philadelphia market. So let's oh. see. Yeah. I was only there for two years Okay. before Los, before Los Angeles called, and I moved to L.A. in 79. Okay, so is that where the bulk of your career was? Yes, 26 years in Los Angeles oh. before, I reti- before I retired. I worked primarily for television news. You know, I was the guy on the 6 o'clock or 11 o'clock news doing the sports. And also doing a lot of reporting in the field. I did some play-by-play on cable television for Dodger games when I was in L.A. But I've done a little bit of everything in broadcasting. Uh, I mean, coming up through small markets and such, I did a lot of disc jockey work, newscasting. I was a weatherman on TV for a year. Um, I've hosted entertainment shows. I did a game show pilot twice while I was in New York, which never sold um, to the network. Um, so I've, I've done radio talk shows, done a little bit of everything in broadcasting. And now you wrote a book. And now I wrote a book about all those memoirs. So you took a lot of notes? <laughs> <laughs> no, but my memory served me well. I guess. Well, did you see, is this something you just wanted to do or or did you see a need? Was there a particular message you wanted to get across? I never, ever dreamed I would write a book. I never believed I had the skills or the creative depth to write a book, although you don't necessarily need all of that for a book of memoirs, but I just never imagined that I would do something like that. But then a good friend of mine named Frank Pace, who is a successful Hollywood producer in Los Angeles, in Hollywood. Um, He wrote a book called If These Lips Could Talk about Hollywood personalities and the people that he has worked with over the years. And so my wife and our youngest son said, hey, dad, if Frank can write a book, you can write a book. I said, no, I don't think so. They said, yes, just sit down and write it about your memoirs, about your career. So that's what I did one day. I sat down and started writing. And nearly a year later, the book is out there in the world. What are the some of the standout moments that we're going to find out about? Oh, gosh. So many, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, to try to answer that question, I'm, I'm always ready to pick up the book and start thumbing through it. But... You know, many, many standout moments. I mean, just having the opportunity to work in New York City at a very young age. I was only 26 years old. And CBS called and said, hey, do you want to work in New York? I was in San Francisco at the time. And what am I going to say? No, I don't want to work in New York. Of course, I said yes. So I went just to be able to live and work in the Big Apple as a young person, um, that was unforgettable, unbelievable. I, I really felt like I grew up in New York because New York City forces you to do that. Yeah, you know, you open you open your front door where you live, and immediately, even before you get out the door, life hits you a smack in the face. You have to grow up in New York. So, 
I owe a lot to that. I got to interview great athletes like Muhammad Ali in New York City, um, great baseball players, football players, basketball players, you name it. I got to socialize, not socialize, but be at events with these people on a daily basis. Um, traveling with the Dodgers for 26 years, baseball is my favorite sport. So that was a perfect opportunity for me. Well, weren't you a baseball player? I was. I was. I, I played minor league baseball in the low minor leagues for the Chicago Cubs. I played one year and they decided and I realized that I was never going to make it to the major leagues. But I had the opportunity to play one year. I got paid to play. I was a professional. Phil K. Wrigley, the chewing gum magnate, he owned the Chicago Cubs at that time. And he signed everybody's paycheck, whether they played in the major leagues or not. So Phil K. Wrigley signed my paychecks. Things like that stand out for me. Um, the game show pilot that I did for CBS got to do it at the Ed Sullivan Theater on Broadway. And I have a photo here at home of me standing under the marquee with my name and the name of the show, Take Five it was called. So I, I tease people and say, see, I appeared on Broadway. And in, <laughs> fact, in fact, it's the truth. And I have proof. I have a picture of myself on Broadway under that marquee. Um, the, the, the cable television play-by-play -play of the Dodgers and the, they were called the California Angels at the time, and now the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim. But I got to do those games, which is something I always wanted to do. I always wanted to do play-by-play in baseball in particular. And I had that opportunity and just, I got paid to watch games. Come on. <laughs> What's you know, better what than better that? job is there? <laughs> right. There were days, there were days in LA when I could cover a news conference in the morning and have a free breakfast and then do one at noon and have a free lunch and then go cover a Dodger game at Dodger stadium and have a free dinner. I mean, there were there were weeks where I didn't even have to buy food. That all changed uh, with the advent of cable television and satellite television because there were so many media people after a while that ball clubs and organizations realized they just couldn't afford, they would say, to yeah. keep feeding everybody. So they started charging us a nominal amount of like five bucks to go in and eat. But in the beginning, that wasn't the case. I got to go to games free and I got to eat at games <laughs> for free. <laughs> if they threw in a beer, I mean, come on. Well, speaking of beer, my favorite beer, my favorite beer in life was at Bush stadium in St. Louis back in the eighties. Anheuser-Busch, the owner of the, uh, St. Louis Cardinals, right. at Bush Stadium in the press box, they had beer on tap. Mm. And I've covered games there on hot August nights in St. Louis. And I could go to the bar in the press box and get an ice-cold Anheuser-Busch beer. And it's the best beer I've ever had. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's it's very different now, wouldn't you say? Yes, extremely different. It changed a great deal. And 
ultimately it contributed to me retiring earlier than I necessarily had to, but the business had changed. How so? Well, you know, ratings have always been important. Right. And we all, all get that because the higher ratings you have, the more potential a station has to make money. And that's the goal of any business. So I get that. But there came a time when ratings became more important than anything else, practically to the point where you would hear things like, well, you know, don't don't let the facts necessarily get in the way of a good story. Make it entertaining. It's a, sensationalize it if you have to. We need viewers. That sounds awful, but that was the environment late in my career. And um, I just didn't like it. Well, you know what, Tony? It's interesting because I came in behind you and I'll never forget you know, I was at KYW News Radio, and then I came to the sister station in New York. And I remember my editor saying to me, This is infotainment. Don't get too wrapped up in the facts. And I just went, Oh my God, you know, straight out of straight out of college, you know, really? I, I thought I was, you know, and it's been that my whole career. And it's, it's, uh, you know, and you wonder why people don't trust the news anymore because exactly. And it breaks my heart to hear that. Yeah, but it's okay. Are, are you out there promoting your book? I would think sports fans would just eat this up. Well, I hope so, but I have to market this on my own. And that's the difficult part. I wasn't prepared for that. I really didn't have the foresight to realize that, Hey, I can write it but can I sell it? So that's that's the real hard part. I'm just hoping that sports fans, and, and not necessarily all, it doesn't have to be a sports fan to enjoy this book, but for, for sports fans, it, it's pretty much a nostalgic journey through a time that spans the late 60s to the early 2000s. So People who may remember me in the markets like New York and Philadelphia and Los Angeles and San Francisco, were those were the four major markets I worked in after working in um, smaller markets my first three years. I hope that they might remember me and take an interest in, in reading about the book because it presents memories for them as well. Um, it also talks about how to get into the business for people who want to do that, right. what to look out for, the realities, the hard knocks, the dishonesty at times, the glamour at times. And it's not always glamorous, as you know. It just isn't. A lot of people think it is. And, it, hey, it's a great gig. It's a wonderful job to have. Yeah, but, like I said, I got paid to watch games. Yeah, but you worked hard. You work oh. really hard. You give up your life. I mean, I, I work, sure. most women that I know never got married, never had children. I managed to get married and have children. And I'm telling, it's not easy. It's not easy no. because you are, you, it, you, <laughs> you're going 24-7. I don't care what anybody says. You are always, you know, watching, in your case, you know, watching the scores, watching the games, watching what's going on with these athletes, day to day, uh, injuries. Like you, you have to be on top of it all the time. And you, exactly. my God, you were probably, you're working nights, weekends, summer. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Tireless hours. You, you, Tireless hours. Yes. Endless hours. So you loved it. You know, we do it because we love it. 
Yeah, and and you you're basically on call, like you said, twenty four seven. Yep. Yeah, well, it certainly is a pleasure to talk to you, Tony Hernandez. And I would hope that if you uh, went to the local library or put together a book signing and put out um, an email or, a, you know, I don't know if you do Twitter or whatever social media you're connected with, that, that people would come and, and hear your stories. You've got great stories. Yes, thank you for that. And and I'm working on all of that. I'm learning something new every day. I would think that I won't give up your local paper, you know, whether it's online or whether you actually have a real paper would would do a feature on you in a in a heartbeat in the Sunday section. Well, in, in fact, I, I have been featured in two of the newspapers here, the small town of Whitefish, Montana, resort town in the Rocky Mountains, beautiful place. <laughs> but and, and it's been discovered. So a lot of um, people with a lot of money are coming in here now and buying up properties, which we're not really thrilled about, but it's happening. And that kind of change is probably inevitable. I think it's going on in other small places too, especially when COVID hit. Yeah. People are looking to get out of the big markets and find something more comfortable and smallish. Right. So anyway, uh, yeah, I have been featured and... Uh, you know, it, it's a it's a slow process, but it, it's very competitive, mm-hmm. as you know. Yeah. And uh, it, it's the kind of thing you just can't give up on it. No. You've got to keep working on it, which I plan to do. Yeah. Whitefish, Montana. All right. I'm coming out. <laughs> got to do <laughs> You should. Something. Put it on your list. All right. I will. All right, Tony. You take it easy. Thank you so much. Have, I appreciate it. Have a great day. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. You may have noticed the uh, United States has a a habit of going into foreign countries, thinking we know what's best without any real knowledge or consideration. Maybe we have the knowledge, but we just don't consider culture, customs, history, how they view their world, how they view our world. You know, Afghanistan is a a great example, Uh, a country that has endured literally centuries of political unrest, tribal wars, and takeovers. So we could probably learn a lot from Afsai Nasiri and his book, Forced to Flee, A Tale of Two Afghan Refugees. It's a story of uh, my uh, father and myself. First, my father was born in Afghanistan. At age 12, he became a refugee in India, grew up there. And then you know, I was born in India, and then I happened to go back to Afghanistan, but he sent me back. And then again, there were wars and, and, and uh, coups in Afghanistan and, uh, in, in 70s and 80s. So I had to leave Afghanistan and, and come back to India. And so th- that's the story. Yeah. What was it like living there? Oh, uh, f- f- fine. It was uh, my country, actually. <clears throat> my father had sent me there, and uh, uh, my forefathers were uh, buried there. So naturally, it had my roots. So it was very nice. Things were very smooth. Uh, however, um, uh, life went, became tough after the coup in 1973. And then a new government came. The king was removed. So all that. Uh, um, created uh, problems for um, peaceful uh, living in Kabul. And uh, and there were five coups of, during my nine years to stay in Kabul. Uh, five coups at us and five new presidents <clears throat> when I left Kabul in 1980, come back to India. And then when did you come to the United States? 
Oh, I came to the United States because twelfth um, of uh, January, nineteen eighty-one, arrived in Los Angeles, and then from there we moved on to New Jersey in uh, on thirteenth of January, nineteen eighty-one. You came and, to New Jersey, right? New Jersey, and uh, from uh, uh, New Jersey, we slowly we were there for a few years. Then I moved to Syracuse, New York, for my job, and then. I was there for uh, 10, 12 years and then moved to uh, Virginia for the job because uh, I joined State Farm Insurance Company and I was there for uh, two agencies, one in Fairfax, one in Manassas. And finally, I gave up all that and retired uh, in end of nineteen, uh, uh, end of 2019. And since then, I've been at home and I've been writing the book and I published it finally, but this is a, this is a three-dimensional book. One is cul it's cultural, it's historical, and it's political. What I have done is uh, written my memoirs uh, um, um, from the from the age when when I was able to uh, write, and then uh, uh, I have taken that and written it in the form of uh, episodes. So I have uh, um, uh, like a cultural episode, and I have historical episodes, and I have uh, uh, political episodes. So while I was living there, whatever government was in power, uh, I wrote about the politics of that time. And as the, um, uh, the as these people uh, state another coup or whatever, I went with the history. So I wrote history in the book history of afghanistan for uh, during 9 years when i was there from 1971 to 1980 and i have the history of afghanistan and also um, i have a historical background there um, and i also had political developments in the country um, you will find in my book uh, how a cultural tension appears when the uh, two civilizations uh, um, uh, come face to face each other. My mother was from India, my father was from Afghanistan. So always we had those cultural tidbits in the house. Um, like my mother would cook had, um, food, it would be Indian dishes like Mughalai dishes and all that because she was born in India. And my father came from Afghanistan, so he liked Afghan dishes. So it was always a conflict of uh, culture. And then um, I grew up in that and um, uh, when I came to Afghanistan, it was totally different, a different country. I saw a different country, a, a country which is trying to develop, uh, trying to put the best foot forward, but they did not have it. Very ancient living in um, Kabul. And from the kind of, if you left Kabul, went five or 10 miles uh, towards the countryside, it was like ancient uh, history. So all that I have brought in there. And then how I returned, uh, what happened to the, during the coup, and then I became a journalist. I was the editor of Kabul Times. I was the English language newspaper, the Kabul Times. I became. I was the editor of the Kabul Times for seven years. And um, uh, so I would write stories and all that. Those stories were always um, censored and all that. You know, they were not. You could not just you know, write them straight as a journalist. It had to go through a. Uh, what was censor board and all that, but anyway, so I was the editor for uh, the Kabul Times for about six to seven years before I was forced to leave because the communist regime took over uh, in 1979, 
and uh, the existing the, the president of Afghanistan was murder and all that and the communists took over so it was very difficult to live in a Marxist regime uh, uh, so we had uh, people were I mean, Af Afghans were trying to leave Afghanistan and uh, so was I and then finally I ended up in India but it, uh, I'm, I'm giving you a brief uh, this thing how old were you how old were you when you were in Afghanistan I, I was 22 when I left India to go to Afghanistan uh, and then when I came back, I was, I think, 30-something. I was there for nine years. Do you talk about what it was like to yes. live there? I mean, did you live in an apartment? Yeah. Did you live in yes. a house? Uh, and then if you left Kabul, they were, they were living in what? Uh, no, depleted living condition. What was life like there? Uh, life in Afghanistan was uh, like in any other an uh, underdeveloped country was that uh, there was authoritarian rule. Uh, um, okay. There was uh, no open censorship or uh, when it came to journalism, uh, people live, of course, uh, on very uh, small stipends or salaries. Uh, it was slowly developing. It was a monarchy at that time when I reached Kabul in 1971 and monarchy was overthrown in 1973 so but this book is a story it's like a novel it you. Um, uh, this is how when i reached kabul this is what i saw it was an evening in september of 1971 at the beginning of fall that i reached kabul the weather was nice and cool for me it was a little chilly coming from india and traveling Across Pakistan, it was still cold for my taste. A film of smoke seemed to be hanging all over. There was an unpleasant smell in the air. I did not recognize the smell. However, I remember my father talking about how in the evenings in Kabul and other cold areas of the country, people warmed their homes with food bukharis, heaters, or cold stoves. The stench smell was the gas byproduct of the cooking stove and home heaters. The old and beat up Afghan post bus coming from Peshawar, Pakistan, had just dropped me off at Pashtunistan Square, which is a famous. From Peshawar to Kabul, almost a five to six hour ride through winding passes and dangerous looking valleys and mountains with large tracts of barren land. While, whilst it was picture set, it seemed the artist was short on color green. I sat silently reflecting on my life and future, which awaited me. Pashtunistan Square seemed to be the hub of activity in those days. Passengers coming from Pakistan were dropped off here. From there, they proceeded to their destinations. It was close to the King's Palace, popularly known as Urg, a gray-looking building, heavily fortified and short of greenery. I was supposed to have been uh, to have arrived two days earlier. However, at the border of Afghanistan and Pakistan, the Afghan customs official, Gumruk, sent me back to the so the story goes on like that. And then I don't want to read the whole thing. And then uh, I come back to my early education. Uh, that I went to a uh, British school, St. Joseph's in India. So you're, you're just trying to give us a feel for what Afghanistan was like in those years up to 1980. Yeah. Now, will you give us the rest of the story in another yeah. novel? Or you that'll be in another novel. Now, he, uh, here, I'm, I'm just trying to uh, tell you what, for example, uh, why Afghanistan were in such a condition the way it is now. I'm telling uh, the reader that uh, in, when Britain occupied 
Afghanistan, what the Afghans did was uh, pick up arms, fight, and and uh, kill uh, the British army, and and and, and total annihilated the sixteen thousand strong you know, British forces in Afghanistan, and they did not let them settle. Just like what happened to Americans, they had to leave after um, uh, so many years. But in India, it was totally different. The British army and the British settling India, they brought their culture, they brought their development, they, they, they let the country be educated, they built education centers and all that. And Indians were uh, taught and, and in modern technology and, and, and um, uh, literature. And uh, what the result was, after India was freed in 1947, they had uh, an army of uh, engineers and doctors and this and well-read people who took over the of uh, um, uh, what you call the reign of the government and and and, the, and India was an it still remains a democracy, but in Afghanistan that did not happen. In India, the British uh, the British had built train uh, routes, road network, and all that. Uh, but in Afghanistan, there is no train system. They're not uh, they're very rudimentary road system, with the Soviets built. Uh, yeah. So, but uh, it's. So you draw you draw comparisons between the two between the two, two, between the why, two countries. Why, why Afghanistan is so backward now? And this is the result of the hundred years back when uh, it was not able to uh, enjoy the uh, fruits of uh, like British labor uh, of te new technology and everything. Afghanistan remained very rudimentary, and what effect was there? Um, there could have been a religious effect, effect of the religion and all that. So I talk about that also. So so Afghans fought British rule yes. tooth and nail, tooth and while while India embraced it, yes. and and the, and so you're drawing the distinctions between the two countries. I find it really interesting, um, and uh, it must have been yeah. must have been painful yeah. for you to look back on. Yeah, this. Uh, um, it's um, uh, I mean. For for me, it was so um, difficult because I had to. I left India after going to college and everything, and having a degree in political science and all. But when I came back to Afghanistan, there was nothing where uh, you could say that they're building a infrastructure or doing. Mostly, uh, the it, it was kind of a layback. Um, people just going to work if they had a job. If not, they just stay on their land and and eating uh, fruits and, and and dry nuts and this and that and like a special kind of food. Uh, uh, but there was no there was no there was no vision in anything. And nobody has the vision. Right. What happens fifty years from now? What happens hundred years from now? What happens twenty years from now? Right. They were just passing that day. And again, the morning start all over again instead of create, being, right. being innovative, or so th that's what I found in Afghanistan at that time. And when uh, after the so so Soviet invasion and after um, uh, the communist coup, uh, I, I was done with uh, coups. But within nine years, I faced I saw five changes of the government and six new presidents. So uh, we knew the country is not going anywhere, and and that's exactly what happened. I'm I'm talking of 1980, 
Uh, after that, uh, there was a war. That the Russians, Russian war was there, and after that, the Americans thought that they can take care of things because uh, they are different, which was not. I mean, and, and they in right. there in twenty years, they fed Afghan psyche for uh, whatever it was, and then uh, they uh, they took money. I mean, they they poured in money in Afghanistan in billions and billions and made people all people corrupt. Um, I mean, they were the people had no directions anyway. They had no vision anyway. They saw free money, and everybody started looting. And uh, this, this is when the you're talking about when the Americans yeah came when the Americans came. But you asked me the question about the Americans. That's what right the the Americans right. did a big blunder, and they they made the whole nation a, a, a group of thieves, and 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 you know <laughs> they turned them into. Uh, uh, greedy people, and uh, right. including the pre president. Look at Zelensky; he's he's uh, an Ukrainian president. He he's fighting tooth and nail with the Russians, and he's he's willing to die for that for his country. In while in Afghanistan, that uh, spirit was not there. As soon as uh, uh, um, uh, they saw the Americans leave, everybody started. Um, uh, escaping and, and uh, flying away, uh, uh, fleeing away from Afghanistan, and taking money with them. So uh, right. even today, I was reading an article. It was about somebody named uh, Sarah uh, Chancy or something, and they were talking about eight hundred and fifty-four million dollars was uh, uh, siphoned off in Afghanistan uh, in the last in. 2021 because the president of afghanistan was also involved with this and uh, all these big names big shots whom american uh, took gave shelter and everything and uh, uh, they all took money and went to dubai and went to uae and all these places and and to kazakhstan and uzbekistan uh, and took with them as much money as they could even the president ran away i mean after so, uh, so that's what happened uh, with this uh, fiasco of Afghanistan, the United States, because uh, as you mentioned earlier, the Americans have a, a what you call uh, arrogancy, uh, which they don't realize that they are arrogant. <laughs> yeah, and it, I, I, yep. It's been mm -hmm. said. It's been said. I can't wait to see how you put your next book together because that's when you're going to get right. into the American. Exactly. That should be interesting. Yes. Listen, thank you so much. I enjoyed talking to you. I Good luck promoting this All book. Right. I think you should be in a history class somewhere. <laughs> that's true. You know, Middle Eastern studies, that's you know. Exactly. You're right. I mean, because we need Americans have a bad habit of thinking we're always mm -hmm, right. And mm -hmm. we, we don't understand the tribal culture. No, not at all. Of places not like. Uh, of Afghanistan. Yeah. Anyway, thank you so I much. I that. Different Days Go Different Ways is the name of our next book, and no one knows that better than Alexis Laybourne, mother of how many kids? Um, I have four children, so, you know, they go through so many different emotions throughout the days. How old are they? Yeah. Well, I have, uh, he, well, my, my, they all turn different ages this year, so I have 11. My oldest is 11. I have seven-year-old. I have two year old and a three year old. Wow. Yeah. So they inspired your book. Yes, they did. What's it about? 
Well, it's about a girl, a little girl, you know, her mom and her dad, you know, she goes, well, mainly it's mainly about the little girl. She goes through these emotions every day with different things happening that happens just in everyday life. You know, she might be sad, bored, angry, and it kind of shows in the book that she has her parents, you know, her mom. So to there to help her get through those emotions. So is there a story here? Does something happen? No, it's not really a story because it targets it targets like, you know, I would say toddler or baby up until like seven. So it's more so um, just speaking about like, you know, different days go different ways. And certain days you might be sad. And certain days you might be angry. Certain days you might not know what to do. It's not really like a storyline. It's more like a just a little quick book to read with your little ones and maybe start off a conversation or so. So when I open the book, what's the first thing I see? The first thing you're going to see is their house. This big yellow house and the porch. And that's the first thing you're going to see. And is there a name for the character? No, you don't. She doesn't have a name. None of has a name in the book. It's just. So what do we see besides the house? Well, you see the little girl's expressions, like she might be going to the doctor's or she might be going to the gas station or the grocery store. It's, um, she's sitting there getting a simple checkup. Is she scared or is she upset? No, she's just, she's relaxed. So that's a good day? Yes, that's a good day. All right, so give me an example of a bad day. So it will be a bad day. It's like almost to the towards the end of the book where she's sitting at the table. Um, not so much of a bad day. She's more like bored. She's bored. Um, she doesn't know what to do. And there's also a page in the book where she's sitting in her room. She's crying. She's sad. Um, then we have a page where she's getting out the car with her mom and she's angry. And then the mom tried to offer, some, offer her something to make her feel better like a sucker. And does that make her feel better? Yes, she ends up with a smile on the next page. So what what we learned from this book is that not every day is going to be great. Yes. But we're going to get through every day, right? Yes, yes. <laughs> How you make it out? Like, are you are your kids reading the book? I have read it to my uh, my children. I think about once. Um. I just asked my son that he want to read it again. He said yes, because he was having a bad day himself. And he read it. My kids, they like the book. They do. Do you get to read it to any other kids? No, not at the moment. I was trying to, you know, um, like get my book out there a little bit more. And so how are you doing that? I am trying to learn how to do that because I my first thought was just to write a book you know, get it published. And now I'm in the process of learning on like, how do I promote my book? I did post it on my Instagram, but I'm trying to figure out other ways to promote. Are you, uh, your kids schools, would they let you come in and read their, read the book to a class? You know, they might, I would have to ask. That is actually a good idea. I didn't think. I mean, yeah. Like, you know, the teachers and everything, right? Yeah. Yeah. Or even at a library, don't they have like, do they have kids reading? You know, sometimes they'll have, you know, come in and read to the kids, you know, on a Saturday morning or after school. 
I was actually trying to get my book into the library. Um, I didn't really get it. Um, they said they have so many genres out there already. I kind of got denied once, and I was trying to see if I could get into other libraries. I'm kind of waiting on an answer. Do they have um, days where people come in and read their books? I'm not sure. I think that's something I should ask. Yeah. Parents, right? You want to get to the... The kids like it, they'll ask their parents to buy it, right? Is that what we hope? Yes, hopefully, hopefully. But I'm definitely going to pick up those, like, ideas because I didn't even think about, you know, just coming in and sitting down and reading the book. Do you enjoy writing? Did you enjoy doing this? Yes, it was very exciting. It was actually, like, fun. It was something new. Like, I've never had a book published before. It's my first book published. And so, so good, you know, seeing my first, touching the book and everything was like, I really did this, you know, I've been wanting to write a book for so long, like a children's book, something like, you know, it gives a good message and it made me feel good to be able to put out a good message and also get a book published for the first time. It felt really good. You going to keep writing? Yes, I am currently working, trying to see what my next one is going to be. I did have some ideas. I'm not sure which one I'm going to put out. But first, I'm going to try to work on this book and push out first. Good enough. I got to tell you, the most surprising thing to a lot of authors is um, writing the book is the easy part. (laughs) You know, when you compare it to the whole process of trying to get it out there, that's that's a whole nother challenge. And I have to tell you, different things work for different people. And you kind of just have to try everything you can think of and keep the faith. Definitely keep the faith. All right, finally, some kids have a bad habit of making things up, and that concerned our next author, Sebrin Christopher, who wrote Sky Horse. She's in the Virgin Islands. What do you do there? Well, at the present time, I just keep writing. I write poems and uh, pop on short stories. I'm a retired teacher. What did you teach? Well, I teach different subject areas, English, social studies. What happened, I worked with, most of the time, I work with my special education students and math. So you have to teach them just about everything. What inspired you to write this book? Well, sometimes I, uh, from my experience, I've had students with letters, really tall stories. And so I just wanted to show that sometimes when you tell stories, you can um, have consequences as a result of it. So I just, reti- I just decided to write it so that at least students would learn that they should be truthful at all times. So tell me about your book. Who's your main character? The main character is Sky Horse. Uh, what Sky Horse is, it's a horse that was born with wings. So he can fly and go to different places and meet, um, have different experiences with other animals. And so he will come back and boast about brag about why where he's been and what he did and you know different kind of food and everything and they were not true but some of his friends believed him and some didn't but as a result of that he wanted to prove that he was telling the truth and he could do something that really couldn't and as a result of that he ended up with um, problems where he was actually changed he was one, but he thought that he could get away with it, so he paid for it with his life. 
What what happened? He accepted um, a challenge that he could fly to the sun. That he could fly to the sun? Yes, and come back. And all I tried to warn him that is not a good idea. And he told him, yeah, he went, he always go to different places and see different um, people. Oh, I shouldn't say people, I should say different animals. And he attempted to do it. And as a result, there were changes in his, in his life. So that's what happened with Skyhorse. But you actually have to read a book to know exactly what happened to him in, in the end. He always brought about things that were not true. It's just that he wants to show that he was, he was better than most of the animals. Did the other animals know that he was full of himself? Well, yes. Most of them knew that. He had a good friend, but they, they knew that. What, what age group is this book for? This is, um, this is what children like um, six and seven graders. Well, not sorry, not six and seven graders. Six and seven years old. So first graders? Yes. So you had students who would tell stories that weren't true? Yes. They'll just make up stories and try to convince them that it's true. And so I decided to write because of my experiences I had with a lot of the students. Isn't that what kids do, though? Well, yes, but then you still have to remind them that it's not good to be telling stories that is not true. So you're 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 a retired teacher. Are you able to take your book into the schools? Well, I, I would I would be able to because um, I retired um, not so long ago. But the, the thing about it is that I recently moved back here. I used to work in the in the um, in the state, and then I came back to the Virgin Islands recently. So is it going to be more difficult for you to publicize your book there in the Virgin Islands? I don't think so. Okay. People know you there. You have family and friends. and Yeah, I have family and friends. Yeah. Yes. All right, Sebrin. Thank you. And we hope you enjoyed this edition of the Reader House Author Roundtable, where authors from all walks of life come together to discuss the trials, tribulations, and triumphs of publishing their books. I'm Alice Stockton Rossini. We hope to see you back here every Friday night at 8 p.m. or listen to our podcast anytime on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, and Podserve, just to name a few. The Author Roundtable is sponsored by Reader House Online Bookstore, where independent new authors come first.